Ho, 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 hello, and welcome back to Bar Humbug, the Christmas movies podcast that recommends at least 100 lights per foot of tree height, but only if they are cinema-sized floodlights. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara, and today I'm tackling one of the darkest, most twisted and funniest Christmas films of the year. Yes, I'm going to be talking about Silent Night, which is not, as you might expect, a sweet little film about some people in a stable, but a pre-apocalyptic social satire from debutante writer-director Camille Griffin and producer Matthew Vaughan. So this film is set in a very nice house where some awfully nice middle-class types, old university friends, have gathered for a lovely, lovely Christmas. Kira Knightley and Matthew Good play our hosts, and they've invited characters played by the likes of Lucy Punch, Annabelle Wallace, Shopaid Risu, Lily Rose Depp, and Rufus Jones. Knightley's Nell is keen to make everything perfect for Christmas, as so many people are. But there is a twist in this tale, because this entire gang are facing a world of environmental catastrophe and the imminent arrival of a face-melting cloud of pollution, like goo, basically. And this is their last hurrah before swallowing their government-provided suicide pills and bidding farewell to it all. Only young Art, who's played by Jojo Rabbit's Roman Griffin Davis, and who is also, by the way, the director's son, is willing to point out how completely mad this all is. But, you know, you can't let the mere end of the world get in the way of a good Christmas shindig. So I was delighted recently to speak to Camille Griffin about her film, to learn more about the challenges of getting it made, and why comedy was the only way to go. Here's Camille. Camille, welcome to Bar Humbug, and congratulations on, I think, a very unusual Christmas movie. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just, yes. I'm just ashamed at my attire, but we, we won't have to talk about that right now. It, actually, it looks very Christmassy from here. You've got okay, sort good. of a red okay. plaid, so that's <laughs> the <Christmas laughs> <I'm concerned. laughs> So, look, look, first question. I mean, this is a sort of pre-apocalyptic drama. I mean, would you describe it as a Christmas film yourself? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's obviously a Christmas film because it's set at Christmas, but no. I mean, yes, I do. When people say, what is the film? I say, oh, it's a, it's a dark comedy, so, you know, set at Christmas. But I don't know if you can call it a Christmas movie, no. Mm, yeah, it, 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 it's not your average Christmas movie, no. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to, I think, set more films at Christmas. It's a great time to set a movie at Christmas. Yeah, because everything's kind of heightened, right? All the kind exactly. of emotions kind of come to the fore. Exactly, exactly. You get that instantly. I have to explain that sometimes, but I've, I don't know why I have to explain it. It's obvious, I think, but yeah. Yeah. So so tell me about the, the inspiration for this. This was sparked with a com- by a conversation with your sons, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, I think I, I did my first TV radio interview the other day and uh, and I was quite honest, but I think which I think it's a good thing. But I, all my material I've ever written is kind of challenging the dysfunction of the middle classes. Mm. So I suppose, obviously, then I have to say to myself, well, how dysfunctional am I? Obviously, I'm pretty dysfunctional, but I have a real issue with my class system that I grew up in. You can probably tell I sound kind of posh, but I was kind of actually an outsider in a way to the classes, but I didn't inherit this accent. Mm. So I always wanted to kind of challenge, um, uh, yeah, the privileged class and, and their value system and, and how they react under extreme circumstances and what, what makes them tick and things like that. Um, and then this particular idea, I think, happened. I was trying to find a, something to write that I could make for very little money in one location and because I decided to not go back to the film industry to ask for fungi again, because they wouldn't give me any money. 
And um, for years, they wouldn't give me money. And it was just my last attempt. Anyway, um, I was chatting to the kids and they'd just seen Warhorse. And they said, oh, what would you do if there's a war? And I was like, oh, blimey, well, that's a, that's a very serious thing. And I, and I remember being very little and watching a film called Where the Wind Blows. Did you ever see that oh, film? Oh, God, yeah. I'm still scared. Yeah. Yeah, the Raymond Briggs film. And uh, I watched it accidentally think it was a cartoon, you know. Yeah, because, yeah, that's what it looked like. It looked it cute. It looked like. And, uh, and I remember, I mean, very, very young and finding out about nuclear war and thinking, well, we're all going to die. Like, my world had ended. I was terrified. So I was careful with them. I said, well, it's not really going to, it's not really going to be like guns and the horses and, you know, it's going to be really big bombs. And, and I said, and it's going to be dreadful. So uh, we're either going to have to go to the forest and, you know, arm ourselves or end up eating each other and it'll be dreadful. And all, uh, we could have a nice dinner, lie down and take my tramadol. I've been saying that over the years. I mean, I'm, I, I like, it was a joke. Clearly I was joking. Yeah. The kids were like, we wouldn't take your bloody tramadol. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, that's what we should make the film about. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, my head's full of dark, crazy ideas, but it wasn't supposed to be serious. It wasn't mm-hmm. supposed to be. And this film wasn't supposed to land in a pandemic. I wrote this before we even knew of a pandemic. In fact, yeah. I wrote it, it was a virus. And then, then my then agent said, oh, that doesn't make sense. So we changed it to environmental. Yeah. It's, it's amazing timing because it feels yeah. very of the moment in a, in a very strange way. You know, just these people in their little bubble, uh, like all of us have been over the past year or so, and, and sort of facing some big crisis. It, it feels all too relatable. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm sad. I, that makes me a bit, I mean, obviously I'm sad. I mean, I'm, I'm sad. Obviously we're all sad about what's happened and the amount of people have had to suffer over the last two years. Of course, I had no intention to traumatize and already traumatized audience but I obviously did have an intention to traumatize an untraumatized audience that mm. is true. um yeah but I think it's still helpful I think I think it's helpful to have these conversations that's important for me I think yeah absolutely and I mean just in terms of having these conversations being casting your own kids in this I think is is one way to kind of control that a little bit I guess because you're having incredibly difficult conversations with any young actor you put in this film and uh, maybe that way you you have a little bit more support network for them, I guess. I, I, I don't know. You yes, know, you're right. All, I, all I, kids obviously have a have a chaperone and yeah, you have, even so. Yeah. You automatically understand that. I think you you automatically go, okay, well, there's not it's not just a form of nepotism. I mean, first off, I cast them because, like I said, I thought I was going to make this film for no money. And I was like, okay, what do I have around me? So I thought, oh, <laughs> you have the star <laughs> of Jojo Rabbit in the house. Yeah. Come on. That was useful. <laughs> and then, um, but he hadn't always been the star of Jojo Rabbit. I mean, he spent two years trying to become an actor. Not because we wanted him to. He actually, he kind of nagged us to. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But um, that was useful. And then I did, I did we met kids for, for Kitty. And the, the twins had to audition. In fact, they all did a little audition around the kitchen table. But we met girls and met some really sweet, wonderful, delightful kids. But I thought to myself, I can't bring them on set. It's going to be chaos. We've got like 10 actors and a crew and busy schedule. I said, they're going to, that kid, that character Kitty gets treated like shit. This is like, you know, we can't subject a child. So actually, Davida is Thomas and Mackenzie's little sister. I didn't know if you knew that. Yeah. And they become friends and Jojo. It just made sense. And her family were close. We were all close. And her parents came to set every day. I just knew there had to be a certain level of safety within this chaotic and potentially traumatizing environment. 
I said to Roman in the car, yes, I was like, did we, are you remotely traumatized for Sunday night? He went, ridiculous. He was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but we had a laugh. I mean, it's awful, but we had a lot of fun making the film. That, that's something I hear from people a lot that, you know, dramas tend to be more fun to make than comedies. Comedies are very serious business a lot of the time. And whereas dramas seem to just, everyone needs that release. Yeah. I don't know why any set needs to be unpleasant. I mean, I think it's such a privilege making a film. It's so fun. And because I've been a member of the camera department for years, I kind of, I knew very early on when I started working the film show, I thought, don't waste people's time, you know. These people just want to get home and, and, and see their families or not, or watch EastEnders or do their washing or don't, don't, don't be a director that doesn't know what they want or just waste people's time. I don't know why any other set should be unpleasant, <laughs> um, but we did have a good time. Yeah. Obviously then the pandemic kicked in. It wasn't as, as, as a uh, less fun. Yeah. We were laughing our way through the pandemic. That doesn't sound right. But do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so when did you actually shoot this? Was this sort of just just pre-pandemic? Was that? Yeah. Well, we um, we had we were supposed to have a four week shoot. We started shooting in February. We we're supposed right. to have a twenty twenty. We we're supposed to have a four week shoot, and uh, we wrapped a few days early because we were going into national lockdown on the Monday. So we wrapped wrapped on the Wednesday. Right. So it was, it was it was quite it was progressing slowly and then getting quite serious and then very serious. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. And then, yeah, very similar, Terrifying. very similar to the giant cloud hanging over the film itself. I mean, tell me about your cast, though, because you've got this incredible, incredible lineup of people. Was was Kira the first kind of piece of the puzzle? Was that how yeah, you came together? She is. That's amazing. I, yeah. I, I mean, I kind of, I adore her for that. I mean, I do anyway. I've got a bit of a, I wouldn't say girl crush, because I'd, I'd like to say we were friends, but she is a kind of remarkable human being, actually. She was the Matthew Vaughan was the first person on board. He's really the person who changed my life. And he said, who do you want to be in this movie? I said, well, it's got to be uh, Kira Knightley, hasn't it? I mean, it's got to be Kira. And he went, oh, that's hilarious. He went, yeah, yeah, good idea. You know, this was very early stages. We were just chatting. Anyway, then, yeah. then it was the summer holidays and we didn't speak for maybe, I don't know, a month and a half. And I came back to him and uh, had a terrible ear infection. He went, oh, Kira Knightley's read The Switch Wants to Talk to You. And I said, but I'm on morphine in hospital. I can't talk to her. But I was like, what? No, no, no. I think I knew before that. I was like, that's amazing. And we had this talk arranged, this chat arranged. Then I got this ear infection from holiday. And I literally was in the hospital. I had to go say to the nurses, could you undo me so I can go next door? I've got to talk to Kira Knightley. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she said, I said to her, I hope you don't mind, but I might sound a little bit droggy, but I'm on morphine. But anyway, she thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> But she, she was amazing because it was quite a tough, you know, brave thing for her. Yeah. So as soon as, as soon as she said she was interested, I was like, God, this was super cool. Because I know that the material is tricky and it was like unusual. Anyway, she, she, yeah, she came. She said, I really like it. And so we were like, wow. I mean, it was amazing. So basically everyone, it all started with Kira. And then slowly one by one, we found the right people. I think Annabelle was one of the first people we cast. Mm-hmm. I think Lucy Punch was one of the last people we cast with Kirby. Oh, wow. Yeah, we met some extraordinary actresses for that book. But the, the, I wrote that line, the um, the really inappropriate, intendedly inappropriate line about the burqa, and no one could do, get the line right. And we were thinking, <laughs> oh, so, 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 it must be. It's interesting when when the say all the actors can't get this one line right. I thought, okay, it must be my writing. I need to cut that line. And then we got a tape from Lucy one morning, and uh, I heard that she said the line, and she got it right. And I was like, oh my god, this is amazing. She was amazing. She, she really was what, I, what I'd written, and, and unfortunately, that was just, just had to be. I was very lucky. Somehow the right people found us, and we found the right people. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, and it's, it's just an amazing lineup, like uh, Chopin de Rizzo as well, and Kirby <laughs> and, and Lily and Matthew, of course. Like oh, it's yeah. a great lineup of people. I mean, you know, this is your first feature. That's are you spoiled basically from here on out? Really spoiled, really spoiled, and also from very. I'm also sadly kind of get attached to things and quite sentimental. So uh, I'm going to probably just harass them for the rest of their life. Not harass, <laughs> but like, oh, you know, you help me so much. Um, but no, they're very. They're extraordinary actors. I mean, actually, what was amazing being on set with this thing in my head going, don't waste time, don't, don't do things you don't need. And, but they would just kept giving and giving and they can, and I was like, wow, and now they can, they can do this. In my head, I was like, wow, they can do. So I was like, wait, let's try this now. They just wouldn't, they were just extraordinary. It was like opening a, a giant gadget that could just have multi, could multi-talented tasking. I don't know. They were extraordinary. Very clever and talented actors. Hello, I'm Kate Lever, host of Who's a Good Dog, the podcast for anyone who's ever loved a dog. We're one of the other podcasts in the Stripped Media family. Each episode, I ask a brilliant person to introduce me to their dog and tell me how having a dog has changed their life. Listen to Who's a Good Dog wherever you get your podcasts. ask you as well about like choosing particularly to set it at Christmas because I think it, it it works brilliantly because you have already this pressure that a lot of people feel to make Christmas perfect mm. and you have that turned up to the absolute maximum because it's the last Christmas it's the only Christmas and just just the insane kind of fizzing tension of that in the background for, particularly for Keira Knightley's now is I just thought that was a brilliant, brilliant way to do it. Was that was that one of the big reasons for for speaking uh, setting it when you did? Well, I think Helen. I'm just going to say I think you completely. I think you're, we're very like minded because you the only person actually I've spoken to quite a few people recently who understands that that we're all dialed up at Christmas that we're supposed to be our best selves are. You know, we at Christmas is the time where we go into our deepest form of sentimentality. Like, who's that person I haven't called and who haven't I spoken to? So yeah. I think really I wanted to parody the middle class, the middle upper classes. And then unconsciously as I started writing, I realized I was parodying the working title genre. <laughs> and then Kira lent us from that working title genre perfectly. And then it all made sense. So it, it wasn't, I didn't sit down and, and take all the bits of the puzzle and go, I have to do this, 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 and this. But it, it was, it just all seemed to make sense. And how, poor girl, poor, poor character. Nell's got to keep it all together. Yeah. You know, she's the perfect kind of version of neutral. Like, it's amazing because when I see the film, I think she has so much love for her characters. She's more able to look. She's like the perfect grandmother. You know, grandparents love their grandkids, but they're terrible. They were terrible parents, right? She's like, she's the perfect friend, but she struggles harder with the kids, you know, even though she's a wonderful mother. She's, she's good. She's got both good and bad and dysfunction. And so I think, yeah, that's interesting. Mm, absolutely. And I, and I love the, the, the different reactions across the whole spectrum. You've got the sort of let's not talk about it. Thank you. Stop talking. Stop talking from Matthew Good. You know, yeah. that kind of desperation to not let anything get too deep or too deep. Yes. It was amazing. <laughs> I've had that my whole life. I've been told to shut up my whole life. So I don't know how you feel, but that, that, that's, that's, that's the theme of my life. Oh, God, here she goes. Oh, God. <laughs> 
And and what about getting that tone right in the film? Because it, it is it is really funny, but it's also really dark at times. You know, is that something that took a lot of draft? So like, how long have you been had this sort of bubbling away? No, it didn't take long. I liked there were <laughs> lots of things that were hard, but I wouldn't say. I mean, obviously, it's hard in the edit because I, you don't always have control of your film. You know. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I was working with some really established filmmakers, Matthew and Trini, and, and the, our editors. So you can't always control what you you know you believe in. And I'm, as a as a first time filmmaker, I don't have the status quo. I know that's going to work, but I didn't have any issue with the tone mm. because I think, I mean, I only what was interesting is that, like I said, Roman had been um, in Jojo Rabbit, and I remember sitting on Tyker's set and thinking. I mean, oh my God, wow, I've got it. I get it. He uses comedy. That's hilarious. You can do, you can talk about Nazis or anything if you use comedy. So that really was thanks to him, the, the inspiration for comedy, because all my other materials have been really miserable. Can you imagine that material without the comedy? Just <laughs> <laughs> probably why my films weren't getting made. No, I haven't killed any kids before then. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> Oh dear. Anyway, you can see I'm laughing at that. That is my tone. So anyway, I think I came home and started writing. It was quite a quick thing to write. But the tone I didn't find difficult because I think life is so ludicrous mm-hmm. and we all are exceptionally brilliant and also exceptionally selfish. Uh, we all can be, uh, you know, I was reading again today about people in Europe's got the highest rate of COVID at the moment. And uh, it's just, it's so sad. It's like, what are people, ugh. anyway, for me, life, you have to find the, the comedy and the hope and the darkness. Otherwise, we'll, we'll, we've all had it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people laugh at hard. funerals, right? People laugh at funerals. So, you know, it kind of seems correct. I have to ask about the Buble song. So you have a Michael Buble song, Christmas Sweater, on this film. And I was sort of sitting thinking, oh, I, I don't remember this from the album. I mean, I'm sure it's on the album. It sounds exactly like, you know, a Michael Buble Christmas song. But this is a special new song for the film. Yes, well, we made the film. I can't remember what point, but Matthew said, oh, look, what do you think of this? And he sent me over this song uh, that he was tinkling on the piano. And because Matthew's like, he's quite, he's got multi-talents. And I went, oh, as you do politely, you go, oh, yeah, it's great. Thinking, what is this ghastly crap I'm just listening to? And, and then he, I said, but I thought, you know, yeah, it's got charm. It's got charm. You know, it's, it's got, it's got a, anyway, I didn't, didn't think anything of it. And then a few months later, hey, what, here, listen to this cameo. I was like, is that Gary Barlow singing your song? He went, yeah, 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 yeah. I went, oh, okay. He said, I think we should put it in the movie. And I was like, um, and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Interesting. He went, who do you want to sing? I said, well, it's got to be, you know, Michael Bublé. He's Mr. Christmas, right? <laughs> um, so Matthew wrote this song. With Gary Barlow, Lorne, the composer. Lorne kept that very quiet. Didn't admit to that till later in the story, in our journey. Um, they brought Buble on. Jane Goldman wrote the lyrics. And they generously gave us the song to put in our movie. What can I say? <laughs> I'm being very cheeky now. No, <laughs> he did give us the song. With that opening scene where they're all driving, that was a pickup later. Wow, okay. And then I said, if, you're gonna, if we're going to have this song in the film, you're going to have to please at least let me take the piss out of it please mm-hmm. yeah which thankfully he did because if he hadn't that would have been worse right oh yeah that no i, I think it works brilliantly uh, just to, as a counterpoint a to everything else yeah. that's going on it's yeah, yeah. we're all going to be singing that you know though soon <laughs> when you're least six you go i'm singing that christmas song because i do it, it's in my head now it's actually we're very clever yeah <laughs> even though forgive me for what i've just said <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but it like it it does work, but it's a complete counterpoint. Yeah. So look, this there's a couple of questions I ask everybody on this podcast because obviously it is about Christmas movies. So what are your favorites? Is there something that you watch every year or do you avoid Christmas movies like the plague? Yeah. I love Christmas. I don't think I still haven't seen Elf. I haven't seen Elf, but apparently that's one of the best Christmas films ever made. It's wonderful. Yeah, you've got to see yeah. it. I mean, I loved when I was a kid. Well, when I was a kid, when the kids were kid younger, I loved Home Alone. But of course, Some Wonderful Life is amazing. But I did show them Die Hard last year because I think that's incredible. And I love Gremlins. I mean, I do love Gremlins. Yeah. I do love Gremlins. Gremlins is a good reference, I think, because there's this, you know, the Gremlin in the blender and, and then it's Christmas. <laughs> yeah, when I think of Christmas, I just think of New York and that amazing toy shop and yeah mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. really not very interesting choices I'm so sorry no no they're they're classics for a reason quite yeah. frankly so but you you you'd really have to see Elf especially if you're like a New York Christmas like it's yeah it's pretty but let me ask you a question Helen because yeah. I've heard so much when I go online and I look up the film which I shouldn't do and obviously <laughs> and I'm gonna stop doing I'll, I'll stop you that now Silent Night Deadly Night is a film that people are I've talked about this cult classic. Have you seen it? It looks terrifying. I saw it years ago and I haven't gone back to it, I'll be honest. Um, yeah, it's scary, as I remember. It was scary. But you're obsessed um, with it. They're still watching it now. They're obsessed with it. You know, I am actually, I'm doing a, a, a spoiler, another episode of this podcast is going to be about a, a horror movie that's out this year called The Advent Calendar where apparently oh. something bad happens every day. So I've, um, horror, <laughs> I've got a horror expert lined up to talk about that. That's so, yeah, hilarious. That sounds hilarious. But there is, I mean, there is a tradition of Christmas horror movies. So, yeah. you know, you kind of fit into that, I think, to an extent. Yeah, I just, I've gone through, I've got to the age of 47 and never knew that this was a thing, you know. <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, Gremlins is your kind of entry into that world. Yeah, and then it goes Silent Night, Deadly there. Night. Yeah. Silent Night, Deadly Night. You should also check out Rare Exports, which is, I think, Finnish film where Santa is the monster, basically. It's oh, amazing. Movie. Well, that it's makes really sense. Cool. He's scary. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, did you watch it? <laughs> That was, was that your last question? I can't remember if you had No, I've got one more, which is oh, yeah. uh, simply this. Um, Christmas traditions in your house, do you have anything in particular that um, that you do that other people don't? We do. We do have a tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's pretty because we were, I was brought up Catholic. My mother's French. See, my mother's French. She was French. She's still French. What am I talking about? Um, as a child, we would go to, we would be allowed to, we ha- we'd celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. So you have your Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. It's not nothing different that we do in our house, but I suppose it's different from the British. Yeah. We'd go, and if we went to church at midnight, if we went to midnight mass, we could have our presents afterwards. So I tried to introduce that into my family growing up, but Ben was like, nah, we're not doing that. We're not going to church on Christmas Eve, sorry. Um, but there is something I quite like about that. Yeah. Uh, but no. Middle no, of night kind of presents. I'm yeah, sorry to disappoint you, no. No, no, that's We fight over the tree. I don't know if that's unusual. I don't think. What, in terms of when to put it up? No, how to put it up. How get, to put it up. Who gets to deck? I give the kids this side of the tree each. Right. Okay. Because <laughs> there's three of them, as you realize. Otherwise, they're, and it is hell. It's chaos. It's chaos. <laughs> so what, they've got a quadrant each that they're yeah, to exactly. Yeah, and I give them each the same one. I go, you go do your side now. And then they all fight. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think that might be a very good coping mechanism for a lot of families out there listening. So I think that's probably a, a good thing. But listen, thanks, thanks so much for joining us, and um, and yeah, nice congratulations on the film. It is not what I expected, but I was I was just amazed by it. I was really really impressed. So um, very grateful. Thank um, you. So I, much. I will be I will be recommending it with caveats that it's not 
the cheeriest of Christmas films. Not the cheeriest of Christmas films. Yes, exactly. Thanks for supporting the film. Well, that's it for this episode of Bar Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays! just heard a stripped media production.